author and political organizer. She's a vital voice in podcasting within Canadian politics especially and has an audience of, she says, mostly young listeners that weekly take in her conversations with co-host Sandy Hudson on a broad cross-section of contemporary issues. She tells me in this interview that the podcast started by just pushing record during her conversations with Sandy and as a consequence of that authentically friendly delivery, the podcast has produced almost 150 episodes that boast a really diverse audience in this sprawling and diffuse country. We discuss the podcast's unique sense of humor and when that sense of humor comes in handy as a means of dealing with really hard subjects, but also how that approach can sometimes alienate audiences that seem to assume that using the language of humor to express anger, to fight grief, to cope with the anxieties of the contemporary moment is an inappropriate mode of communication. To those people, Nora says, to hell with that. I'm going to use humor as much as possible because it's a source of the joy that enjoins us to keep going. Last October, she released a book with Fernwood Publishing called Take Back the Fight, Organizing Feminism for the Digital Age. I can't recommend it enough. Um, You know, she talks about the book here as a kind of guide to adopting a productive position of feminist self-scrutiny at a time when she argues feminist politics needs to be reimagined as a means of meeting the overwhelming threats to collective flourishing that we, to varying degrees, face in the current moment. Feminism should become, again, more threatening, more of a direct confrontation with the current organization of society, in part by focusing on who materially possesses power and how to undermine it. I really value the ways that her book engages with the question of leadership uh, in particular. She talks about how no single leader can correct what she terms political atrophy, that our faith in this privatized notion of leadership is a symptom of an atmosphere in which revolutionary struggles are seen as a thing of the past, a vestige of a less professional or less practical time. Against this, she proposes that we need spaces on the left to practice collective accountability to learn how to bring people together, how to wield the power of mass communication, and how to communicate collective demands to the public in ways that might produce the conditions for practical change. What we do not need, she makes clear, are the virtual platforms that we've become so woefully dependent upon, where we're connected but apart, where we're inclined toward competitive individualism and a kind of knee-jerk hostility, where learning from the other and discovering the capacity to change one's mind Uh, The capacity for a certain kind of constructive antagonism is a struggle. Uh, These private spaces of digital belonging should be contested too from her perspective and contested from the position of what we can learn from political struggles of the past. Uh, You know, I guess my first question is about how you're, you know, coping through lockdown, a third wave. Um, You know, you write in Take Back the Fight um, about the, you know, particular impact on women of this pandemic. And even, you know, on your podcast, you've problematized this idea of a secession, a she-session, economic recession that's disproportionately, um, you know, forcing women to bear the brunt of COVID-19. But I guess I, you know, I'm I'm curious about how, like, personally you're coping in the current moment, how you find the just kind of like, I guess, intellectual stamina to continue to engage with, um, you know, proliferating crises and problems while also just like doing the forms of self-care that keep us going. Sure. Yeah. I, I have this, like, I don't know, weird luck that I'm kind of built for, uh, living through a crisis like this. Um, I, on the intellectual stamina side, I'm very stimulated by what's going on. I'm, I'm always thinking about this and I'm always trying to make the connections that help people understand what's going on. I can see what's going on and that's, probably thanks to my years of working against government, sometimes working with government. And, um, and so I'm really real well placed to be able to like explain this. And it's, it's, it's pretty funny. You know, I, I finished take back the fight uh, under the first lockdown. I mean, the, 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 the manuscript was written uh, and I had just started to do edits when the, when the pandemic happened. No, I just finished my second set of edits. And so I had to like, by the time I got the the document back, the third manuscript, it was like 
this is the final, it's in the layout. You can't change this too much. But by then I'd been living in the lockdown situation for like six weeks and everything felt like, you know, nothing would ever be the same. And so I, I had to look at that book, uh, as it was just at the tail end of being finished, um, with these new eyes that came with living through the first lockdown. Now, hmm. fast forward to today. Um, and I'm, I'm in Quebec city. We have an incredibly high case count. Uh, we've got a, it's record high from over the entire pandemic. And, um, and it's very frightening because it doesn't seem like, uh, there's any urgency <laughs> from our local politicians talking about this. Like, I mean, the last press conference our mayor did, he looked really sad and I felt that, but I didn't hear any, therefore we're going to X, Y, and Z any differently. We're going to just treat this the same way we treated it as the second wave. And so, um, thanks to this really massive super spreader event in Quebec city that was related to a gym, uh, schools been closed. And so what I've, I found myself in the last two and a half weeks now with both my kids home, my partner's home working, and I just can't do any work. Like I just like physically cannot do any work because I'm, uh, my kids are on my computer for school. They need help every four or five minutes because they're only seven. They have totally different schedules, even though they're both in grade one. Um, and it's, that's been really hard. I've, I've actually found that to be the hardest is the parenting rather than trying to do the work. Because if, when the days that my kids are in school, like I, I actually have just written my next manuscript already for my next book. Uh, and doing that within six months is like a huge feat normally. Um, and during a pandemic and writing about the pandemic, I mean, it, it was it was massive, a massive amount of work. But it was only possible because my kids weren't home. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm really struggling with them home. Um, today, they don't have online school. So things are a lot less stressful and more straightforward. And they can just do what they're doing. And I can kind of sit at my computer and chip away at some small things. But um, this pandemic is absolutely brutal to uh, for all of us who have to balance work for whatever reason. Yeah, I can totally sympathize with that feeling of needing to kind of juggle parenting with trying to, yeah, like just um, stay committed to the work of, as you say, trying to make connections and stay true to a certain kind of oppositional politics uh, and use like, in a sense, use this moment um and I think you you and Sandy have talked about this on the podcast somewhat opportunistically in order to kind of leverage for um, meaningful change. It's really difficult when so much of not only your intellectual stamina, but almost like your emotional reserves are being depleted by like needing to parent. I totally understand Yeah, where you're coming from there. Yeah. And it's funny too. Like I, I'm lucky in that my kids have two, like I've got two kids and so they've got each other and they're always mm-hmm. able to play with one another. I know my friends with only one kid. I mean, it's easier to only have one kid, but it's, I know that the loneliness is then becomes a really big issue. We don't have the loneliness problem at all. Um, but it is, it is so all encompassing. It's so all encompassing. It's really difficult. You know, I just wrote an article yesterday and the moments in which I was in what I was writing, I just felt finally like, oh my God, I can, I'm free. I can breathe. I can do what I need to do. Whereas the entire period of the of the previous two weeks has just been this nonstop grind of like what of making my sh- sure my kid is on like learning about like spelling like who cares you know it's just a, it's so bizarre but it's just you know it's a good example of how few supports we have and and you know like we we also have a curfew on in Quebec City which in a lot of parts of the province. Uh, and so even the things I could do, like go for a jog at night, like I can't even do that. And I can't do it during the day because there's too many people outside because like COVID's really, really, really major. And we can't go to the park anymore because it's the first time in the whole pandemic where I've really felt like there's just too many cases in town. So we, we have to kind of, you know, have more distance from people. And then you're like, you know, every day it becomes this battle against time. Like, okay, maybe at two o'clock we can go out. Maybe at three o'clock we can go out. Maybe at seven o'clock we can go for a walk. And we find ourselves literally every single night at 745 running around the block to make sure that we're home before eight. Like it's, Hmm. it's really chaotic. And unprecedented, right? Like this is something that we're still taking stock of is like what impact it's having on our bodies. Um, You know, I think you and you and Sandy have discussed sort of like the, rise in sort of substance abuse this is something that's been documented and and like the literal impact on everyday habits the kinds of kinds of things we're putting in our bodies um you know these are things that we're going to be trying to understand for the for the next well until the next pandemic right like this is this is like we're in this kind of uh continual kind of crisis um 
But, you know, you mentioned finishing the book during the pandemic and how things were changing so quickly that even in late stages, you were really, you know, forced to change what you were saying. Um, you know, on that point, I wanted to talk about the the thing that you, you note uh, toward the end of the book, this gap in Canada in data collection and analysis around, um, you know, the racially unequal distribution of, of COVID's impact in Canada, um, that that's not, as you say, like incidental, mm-hmm. right? You say this is not an oversight. It, it actually helps to hide who is harmed the most. And what's interesting is like, once again, things have changed, right? Um, Alma Shorey Dryden was just on CBC Radio talking about the this struggled for data and, you know, talking about how it's really been people at the margins who are parts of social movements struggling to collect this data. And, and Dryden, you know, in this interview offers an analysis of now, finally, the information that we do have. And, you know, again, like I find you, you quote Dryden in the in the book, right? Her co-authored article on precarious work in the pandemic. Yeah. I'm wondering how you're responding to the news, finally, that the data has been released and that it's being digested by people like Dryden. Yeah, Dryden. So she, so she co-authored that article with uh, Ronaldo Walcott and Beverly Bain. And so they wrote that um, in early April, if I'm not wrong, early April of 2020. And they decried the lack of data and, and, and said that this pandemic is going to disproportionately injure and cause harm to Black, especially, and other racialized workers and people. And, that, and they were writing in the backdrop of two things. The first was that the first deaths had been reported, and they were racialized uh, workers, um, although not many. I think at the time that they wrote that, there was probably only three or four reports of deaths and maybe only three of them had ID- identities attached to them. Cause there's a couple of anonymous like families withholding the information. Although, I mean, the location and the kind of work you can assume uh, the identity to, to some extent. Um, and they were also writing at a time where the data in the United States was showing very rapidly all throughout March and into the beginning of April that COVID was disproportionately harming black and racialized communities And so they were saying like, hey, Canada, pay attention to this because this is going to be how the pandemic unrolls. And if the pandemic unrolls in this way, where black especially and other racialized workers are uh, put into more harm, are, are the ones who are going to die more, then you need to have the appropriate policy responses. You need to protect those workers more. You need to protect these communities more. uh, And failure to do so is going to be uh, negligence, right? But at the same time that they were writing that, there was this huge push uh, by many, many people to have more race-based data collected so that we can have a better I- image, I guess, of, of how COVID was interacting with um, the uh, the racial and economic, and of course, those two things are very, very connected, uh, demographics within this country. Mm-hmm. And so that was the big kind of focus in April, May, and into June of last year was we need race-based data. We need race-based data. And folks like Dryden and Walcott and Bain and others were very clear and have continued to be clear uh, in their writing um, and in comments online about how race-based data is not a solution. Race-based data is a tool to arrive at a solution, mm. but we don't even really need that. We have more than enough evidence. And then there's also someone like Dr. Kwame McKenzie, who's the head of um, uh, of the Wellesley Institute in Toronto, and um, and he like very clearly he was he he did a lot of media in those early months of the pandemic last year, talking about how H1N1 uh, and SARS both impacted racialized communities worse, far worse than white communities. And so we also have historical data to show us this. Right. We should have seen it. We did see it, right? And so this yeah. people need to be very careful about is that it wasn't like we didn't know, right? Even mm. even when there was no data, uh, you know, journalists like Mike D'Souza and um, uh, David McKee at the National Observer and 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 students, I think, involved in, in some in, in journalism projects, I think, around Concordia University, they mapped what the, the socioeconomic status, the race-based information from census information, and the outbreak information that we knew in Montreal. So Montreal is a place where you don't have the race-based data the way that eventually we would have it in a city like Toronto. 
Um, but they just overlaid the maps, right? Like it's not super complicated work and very clearly showed that the pandemic was absolutely raging in Montreal North. And where what is Montreal North? It is a highly concentrated community of people who live in high rises, of people who work in low income jobs, where there's a lot of families who've got multiple workers that found themselves as um, as personal care workers, working in meatpacking facilities, working in other large industrial facilities, and we're getting COVID more. So this was in May of last year, even without the official race-based data, we knew. So then you start to get race-based data in um, other parts of Ontario. Uh, Alberta promises to collect it. I think Quebec promised to collect it, but I've never seen anything um, to actually do that. But again, we still, it still didn't matter because what you, all you need to do is you need to look at what is publicly available to make it very clear that, oh, right, the poorest and most racialized communities in every city in this country are where COVID cases are the worst. And, um, you know, like last night, I just logged uh, the fourth physician death in this country. So only, only, right, quote unquote only. I mean, every death is, is horrible, but mm-hmm. compared to the 28 personal care workers who have died from COVID, um, there have been four doctors who have died from COVID. And of those four doctors, two have been racialized. That is a profession that is not like yeah. where representation of racialized people is not very high, right? And and somehow, somehow, quote unquote, still, it, 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 like we're seeing even even your economic privilege that comes with being a doctor does not protect you if you're not white in this country. Hmm. And so like this poses a lot of very serious uh, questions. Governments, they know about this stuff. They don't need the data. I, I think we need better data. I'm a huge like proponent of us needing better data in Canada in a whole bunch of different ways. But I don't think we need better data because we don't know. I think we need better be- better data so that we can analyze it and, and go through yeah. it and see what it tells us. But we know, we absolutely know that the, that the impact of this pandemic has been borne absolutely the hardest by racialized and low-income people and the intersection between those two groups. Um, and then to say nothing, of course, of how on, uh, on reserve, cases of COVID were, high, were, were 30% higher than off-reserve in Canada, which is also not something that has been talked about very, very much. Now, there is better data uh, when it comes to Indigenous healthcare sometimes. Um, and so we know that. We know that the, 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 the people living on reserve had experienced COVID infections up until now, I mean, these are, this is data from the first two waves uh, that were 30% higher. And so that kind of stuff is allowing, ha- did allow policymakers to, I guess, quote unquote, justify in the face of racists why, um, why uh, indigenous communities and reserves would, would receive the vaccines first, but, or I mean, up close to the top of the list, if we can consider this as a list. Um, but uh, again, it just shows that this was a virus that saw every little crack within how Canada is organized and exploited that crack. And even in absence of that data, it was very, very clear. Yeah. Um, and like, there's a reason why uh, Dryden and others could, you know, predict what the data confirms, you know, in a sense, like we have this. Uh, uh, belief in in data to some extent, a kind of radical faith in data. And you talk about this uh, to a certain extent in Take Back the Fight, that it is in a way so frustrating that making visible is not persuasive in and of itself. Like mm-hmm. we still want to believe that, like to have faith in just information to create change. But you over and over again pierce that illusion. This is the idea is like data is not the crucial thing. It's about learning to learn in a way that doesn't reset our understanding every time that, you know, like prevents white fragility and a certain kind of like toxic neoliberal optimism from like deleting or downplaying the knowledge that already exists. You know, I'm thinking about CBC Newsworld's interview with Desmond Cole following the, you know, the suspicious death of Regis Korczynski Paquette about, you know, defunding the police. He's asked, you know, what does defund the police mean? And he, he says, like, without being flip, defunding the police means defunding the police. Like, yeah. he, re, he resisted taking that step back to define it for a white audience and even did it in this kind of strategic way. Uh, we do want to believe that, you know, just like mediating, making visible is, is enough, but clearly it's not. And again, like, this is something that you write about uh, so beautifully in the book, the idea that, you know, as you put it, 
feminists need to find new locations, uh, uh, create roots of popularization. Um, I think in part, maybe through this medium. I mean, there are limits too to the to the medium of podcasting. But you know, on your podcast, you talk with your co-host Sandy Hudson uh, about how so many listeners say that you're creating a space for left education um, in a sort of desert of too much information. Um, you know, do you get the sense, like, I'm, I'm, first of all, I guess, um, you know, before asking about that specifically, I was wondering if you could speak to um, when Sandy and Nora Talk Politics uh, first started as an idea, uh, when it seemed to start gaining traction, how you developed, like whether the development of like, the tone of the podcast, which is this interesting blend of humor and constructive debate, like holding each other accountable, how that kind of developed, basically? Yeah, uh, well, it's kind of funny, because like, all we did was we put our conversations on record. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are at episode 145. So that might give you an idea of how long wow. we go back. Yeah, and, we, and it's every week. But you know, we have taken breaks in the past couple of years. So it's not exactly every single week. Um, and it just started because someone reached out to me and asked if I would co if I would host a podcast that they were developing. And I asked who the podcast was, was for and he told me and I said, oh, like you can pitch my name, but there's no way they'll agree to that. <laughs> and I was right, of course. And so after he pitched my name and they, I'm sure, laughed at him, uh, he came back to me and said, well, you know, I still believe you should have a podcast. So you know, let me know if you want to talk about how to do that. Because I, I didn't know anything about podcasting, although I did study broadcast journalism. So, um, I mean, I'm not, I didn't start from zero. I know how to edit sound. And so, um, so I had a conversation with him and he gave me some ideas about a, a kind of podcast that I could do. And, and, you know, as, as someone who's um, like, a, as a left-wing writer in this country, uh, it's very hard to work, right? Like, trying to actually get jobs in this country uh, has been impossible, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> um, and placing articles and placing opinion pieces can be very, very frustrating and very difficult. I really have to hit the exact right issue at the right moment to be able to get, um, to be able to get published. And that it just doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes there's issues that are really important that you just cannot convince. Uh, well, I mean, I haven't been able to publish in the Globe and Mail in three years, so fuck, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But um, anyway, so podcasting seemed like a really interesting uh, opportunity for me uh, personally because I because I, I have such a difficult time getting um, my my writing published, and uh, in thinking through the different formats, um, I, I I landed on like, well, what if I just asked Sandy if she wanted to like record our conversations, and and she was like at the start like very skeptical that anyone wanted to listen to us, but. You know, I had left Toronto um, and we had no way of staying in touch. And so it was kind of like this. Well, at the very least, we'll be able to check in once in a while together. And, uh, and that's how it, it, that's how it started. And that's all it is. I mean, we don't have any show notes. We we, we don't have any scripts. We literally decide what we're going to talk about um, in the minutes before we hit record. Hmm. And um you know, and I and I couldn't probably do that with literally anybody else but her. And so the the relationship works very well. It's an extension of the relationship that we formed as student activists in Toronto um, in the student movement. And you can hear that we've got like we know each other well enough that that conversation is quite fluid. Uh, and we're both, you know, we're also both quite professional um, uh, speakers. And so we're able to 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 talk with like like very clear purpose of, of what we're saying and we can riff off of each other and it's not very it's not very difficult frankly you know after an, a podcast episode i might edit out of 50 minutes i might edit three minutes out of it like maybe but oftentimes that's only because there's like a you know house issue like something happening internally that we have to cut out of the, of the recording so what you hear is pretty much what uh, what we what we did and people have really responded to it, um, especially in the pandemic. We've gotten a lot of people saying that we've been able to keep them company, which has been just such a like fulfilling and wonderful thing to hear uh, from people. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, your podcast is unique in, in the sense that it does feel fluid, organic, like the the subversive humor that you two have. You know, this is this is the reason I think that people find it such a, a comfort, right? My, you know, the, the podcasts for me that are most comforting are things like you know, how did this get made and these kinds of comedy podcasts right. um, that are just, yeah, so accessible. And I guess I wanted to ask about that kind of accessibility. You know, Sarah Ahmed in her book, Living a Feminist Life, like she concludes that book by talking about the elements of a feminist survival kit, 
And one of the things she talks about is, is humor, the use of humor as a lifeline. And there's just so much humor in your podcast. This is what sort of separates your podcast in a sense from other politics podcasts. Like it's interesting, for example, like at one point you talk about working against patriarchal socialization. And in your book, you're talking about like unlearning white supremacist forms of education and like freeing up the flow of feminist knowledge. Um, and I'm just wondering if you feel like producing a podcast with another feminist can accomplish that feat. I mean, apparently it's the case, like uh, Jeremy Wade, Morris and Eleanor Patterson have this article on podcasting and they point out that like podcasting's audience is still predominantly white, male and educated. It skews that way demographically. Like, do you have a sense that you are consciously working against the like idealized or intended audience of podcasts as such, or are you just kind of doing your own thing? Well, we are definitely just doing our own thing. Um, we don't, it's so funny. Like we don't really get confronted by who the audience is in a macro way. Obviously we hear from people individually, but we don't get a sense mm -hmm. of who our audience is in a macro way until we find ourselves in a couple of specific search circumstances. So um, when I'm out <laughs> though, before I could go out, uh, if I did a conference, people, I would always be surprised at the, the people who like knew the podcast and were huge fans of the podcast. And the, the common demographic was they were mostly not male, uh, although mm -hmm. we have a lot of men who are, are, are fans, but they're mostly not male and overwhelmingly young. Like, I mean, diverse as well, but, but, but it was the age that really, I was like, oh my God, like there, there are fucking like 17 year olds listening to this podcast. Hmm. Um, and so that's been really interesting. And then the other way that we see it is when we do giveaways and um, we, you know, we see people's addresses because when we do a giveaway, people send us their address and it's just, it, I'm always shocked by how national it is. Like there are people in every corner of this country that listens to Sandy and Nora and that's also really interesting because to do to pull off a good national podcast is really hard or national anything in this country. It's really hard because you literally cannot talk about all of the issues that are important. You know, like every single time I want to talk about something that might affect a, a small number of people in a small community, something big happens. And then you're just like, okay, that's important. But this big thing is important too. And then you're balancing between, you know, what is more important? How do you define what is important? And that's, that's really, really difficult. But, um, yeah, I think that what you're saying about humor is so um, is so great and so important because I don't know, I, like I don't want to get too down on other feminists or the way that people interact, but like you know, like the internet sucks, and so there's a lot of like defensiveness. Sure. People have their elbows out. I certainly have my elbows out all the time, and defensiveness doesn't necessarily elicit humor, right? When you're on the defensive all the time, you're not necessarily uh, responding in a humorous way. Now, I I though like. I mean, when I first put uh, like all of our um, information into iTunes so that, you know, once your podcast is into iTunes, you have to say what kind of podcast it is. And I, I always laugh when I put comedy because we are like listed <laughs> as a comedy <laughs> podcast. Um, but I think it's really important because I, I actually do think that humor is really, really critical. I use humor as much as I can. I've, <laughs> I've always wanted to, you know not be a stand-up comic, but I've like, when I do my, my, my public speaking, I want the audience to laugh. And oftentimes I'm talking about stuff that is heavy and that is not funny at all. And I think that, I think that there's a white, like weird sentiment around heavy issues. And maybe it's because there's like this uh, weird, uh, not proximity to like trauma, broadly speaking among white people, right? Like we don't live lives that are constructed around trauma because we live in, within white supremacy. We are the ones that are benefiting from the lack of trauma that exists within the white world. Right. Mm. And because of that, I think white people are very, um, very awkward in, in a, in a humor response to trauma. <laughs> right. right? And, That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and I've always uh, responded to serious stuff with humor, which gets me in a lot of trouble because there's a lot of humorless white people that are like, you can't make a joke about that. And it's like the hell I can't. Um, and, and to see like the way that humor is used by uh, communities who deal with trauma, let's say that it's really like, it can be used really, really well. And it's really important. And, and laughing together is a really important time of, you know, think of mourning, right? Like if you're in mourning, sometimes when you're with your families, like 
like someone's going to crack a joke, right? Someone in your family is likely cracking a joke to break the tension, to remind people it'll be okay to just speak a different language than grief, right? So humor is a really important element, I think, of organizing. Um, but the the feminist movement being so white, <laughs> I think, um, has meant that the humor element element of it just isn't really there in the among the white feminist group. I mean, I I was reading a book um, to to get me started in writing Take Back the Fight, and and it was a book on pop culture and feminism, and it was so boring and not funny and, and 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 I'm sure she was thinking she was being interesting. She talked about pop culture. It's like totally interesting and all this kind of bullshit. And I, yeah, the, the humor is so absolutely critical to, um, to organizing because it's the fun, right? It's the, it's the actual mm-hmm. joy of being together. Um, and it also with Sandy Nora, it's funny because, you know, Sandy is not the funny one. I think, I think Sandy's funny, but you know, we obviously have a shtick where I'm the funny one and she's just like the rolling her eyes all the time at me trying to <laughs> jokes. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it works really well. I mean, that in comedy, you need to have a funny man and straight man. That's, that's really, I think a really useful device. But, um, I, I do think that, that, that comedy and humor Im- imbued in the stuff that we're talking about is, is critical. And I say this, you know, as someone who receives threats all the time, all the time, right. It's like, I can respond to these threats, um, at, like as if they're serious, I can, I can respond to the fact that all these people want me dead. Uh, or I can make a joke about it. And the joke, I mean, it's a defense strategy for sure, but it's actually more than that. It's also just like being able to take something that was intended to harm me and actually make it be funny and make it be something that makes me laugh and that makes other people laugh. And in that laughter, hopefully sending the message to say, you know what, not only will things be okay, but we will be laughing about them together um, now and, and in the future. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And like, I think about the, um, because again, Sarah Ahmed in, uh, I think, cultural politics of emotion talks about how, um, you know, comedy laughter in films like nine to five, she talks about nine to five in that book, um, is about making difficult subjects bearable. Um, But I think you're absolutely right at the same time that it's more, maybe more risky uh, online, right? That there's a certain kind of toxicity that you, you know, talk about in Take Back the Fight that distorts communication, that in the lack of any kind of face-to-face, um, you know, the the generosity of communication is lost, that richness of communication gets lost. But also, I mean, like that idea that um, Canadian audiences, because of a certain kind of performance almost of liberal guilt, refuse to laugh at difficult subjects. Yeah. Yeah. I, I spoke with a, a Brazilian comedian named Carol Zoccoli, uh, a while ago for a, a course in communications. And this is something she talks about, like going from Brazil, where they're capable of laughing at literally like poverty and, and so-called underdevelopment and so on, and like bringing those same jokes to Canada and getting just like complete silence from Canadian <laughs> audiences, you know? Um, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly nuanced thing, uh, like understanding the kind of, um, you know, shared frame of reference that you either have or lack with your audience in order to actually get them to laugh. It's, it's pretty impressive. And, you know, the medium itself teaches you how to communicate. Like this is, I think something that, you know, take the back to fight is also concerned with is like how uh, the, the creation of these spaces actually allows for people to develop skills of, of, um, you know, persuasion of, uh, you know, just the, the actual skill of self-assurance, like getting your own thoughts clear in your head. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that we talk uh, uh, specifically about some of the ideas in Take Back the Fight. There's a moment uh, relatively early on where you talk about this kind of older style of activism, uh, uh, feminist activism that was characteristic of the 1970s that was about like manifesto writing and a certain kind of, um, I don't know how you, how you might characterize it, but you actually specifically reference manifesto writing as somehow like exemplary of 1970s feminism. And, you know, uh, uh, I wonder, you know, this is a book that you, you make clear is sort of a guidebook for burgeoning feminists who, who want to understand how to break out of just this kind of like awareness industrial complex or whatever, and, mm-hmm. and actually like create the conditions for uh, a feminist counter public sphere, Um, you know, but manifesto writing is sort of coming back in a sense, like, you know, uh, there is this, this book, feminism from the 99%, a manifesto from Verso, that's kind of a big hit. 
the Xenofeminist Manifesto. Legacy Russell has a book called Glitch Feminism, which is kind of manifesto for online feminism specifically. And I see Take Back the Fight as kind of like, I like Russell's book, but almost like the antidote to the sort of like new media euphoria that that book to some extent represents. Um, Did you ever imagine your book as something that could be interpreted as a kind of manifesto? You know, Mm -hmm. like you're talking about how there there's like the development of kind of new writer, feminist writers and celebrities created through the digital medium. And you make this really bold claim that, you know, writers have gained like feminist writers have gained a specific kind of role as leaders within feminism, feminism, specifically because of this void created by a lack of feminist organizing. Um, you know, could your book be considered a manifesto or is it mostly this kind of like guide to unlearning some of the, you know, kind of ritual gestures and routinized ways of thinking about feminism today? That's a really good question. Um, Like for me, a manifesto is a set of principles that you want to try and rally people around. And and a good manifesto is the result of uh, many people coming together and coming up with some sort of common set of statements or beliefs or plans or something like that. Um, and so in that sense, this is definitely not a manifesto. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a movement. <laughs> I am one person. Um, and I, what I do is I offer people, um, I offer people what I think is the best definitions out there of feminism while making it very clear that the best definition of feminism is contested, right? Is when we debate and we kind of try to try to tear apart what exists in terms of those definitions and what are they missing and how do we make them bigger? And I cite Harsha Walia's definition of feminism that she had said in an interview uh, a couple of years ago, and it's quite long. So, you know, I haven't memorized it, but, but that is, kind of, I explain that as my basis of thinking for what feminism is just so that people reading the book are not going to come to the book thinking that it might, that I'm talking about something else. And so in that, in that way, it's not a manifesto at all, but I, I do think it is definitely intended to be a guidebook um, and a guidebook for um, anybody who has never thought about the process of social change. You know, like seasoned activists are going to read the book and go, yes, 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 I know that, yes. Um, they'll, I hope, have um, criticisms and, and dis- you know, things that we can discuss and how to improve the things that I'm thinking about or, or what will come next from other people. But for, for new activists, there's often just no place to have that education. And the education is really, really important. And yeah, the, the, the role that, that writers have taken to be leaders in this, in the void, I think, I think that that's such a, it's just such a great example of where we are right now, where feminism is, where uh, digital activism is and how digital activism takes up such a, such a, an amount of space. And then there's also a, a whole level of celebrity culture as well. And, and that's, I didn't talk about this in the book. But, but celebrity culture around uh, activist leaders, um, I mean, can be quite toxic and problematic. Um, and oftentimes those leaders themselves are the ones that find them in the, find themselves in these spots going, oh, man, I did not sign up for this, <laughs> whether or not they wanted to um, be, be in this kind of like new kind of celebrity um, situation. But it, yeah, it's. Like I, I'm, I'm, I was writing in the 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 void of, of almost two decades of very low level feminist activism, where feminist activism is most often characterized by frontline service work, uh, which is really important, and not the kind of place that has enough time to do the difficult work of building a movement because you are literally servicing the people walking in your door, and trying to explain to people that that the service work and that the online work together do not make a movement because they don't have the political expression necessary to change anything. And so I don't think a manifesto is, is where you say like, this is the political expression that we will now use to change something. You actually build that political expression and, and the, the demands that that political expression creates that then becomes uh, a manifesto or something that you're able to mobilize around. And um, I hope we will get there again. Um, but it, it really cannot, I mean, feminism for the 99% is a really good example of, of three feminists writing through this stuff, looking at a global perspective and, 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 and adding some very rich thinking to where feminism is today. Um, but, you know, in Canada, and, and my book is fiercely Canadian, you know, for better or for worse, um, 
we, we're just we're just nowhere. We are literally nowhere, and we're so nowhere that the prime minister holds a, a, a position as a, one of Canada's most famous feminists, and that is just like that is that is just so bad. <laughs> yeah, that's a nowhere place. Yeah, no, it's so like like the bar truly is on the floor, and we have nowhere to go but up. And I hope that the book helps to be a guide, less so a, a location from which people would pull their their demands. And I think that is, you know, for me, what the book represents. And I, I appreciate the fact that it is like aggressively Canadian um, because, you know, it's it's such a teachable text for that reason. Right. In this in this context, um, you know, uh, as an instructor, this is what I found is that, um, you know, a lot of these um, kind of high profile textbooks, they, they do ch- generally skew American um, and uh, because maybe some of the the examples are more incendiary and somehow just better known. So, I mean, um, yeah, I think your, your book is useful, but it, in that sense, but also because it's a guide to, I would say like, it's funny that you met, you say you don't really talk about celebrity culture um, because it is in part a guide to trying to like unpack the question of leadership and the kind of fetishizing of leadership. There's this whole section where you're talking about, the the strategic focus on leadership and trying to like contest leadership while not maybe abandoning it and like so that's one thing i think that it really the book really gives us but also this kind of almost like pedagogy of debate like this this idea that debate has to play a central role and not the kind of um you know asymmetrical debate that is just about uh the hot take and maintaining one's own like influence but um something something that kind of will, as you, I think, say, kind of weave us together. Uh, so those two things, I think, are really powerful. Um, and maybe we can, I don't know, come back to that. Uh, I wanted to, I, you know, before we get to that, talk about the kind of foundation of the book in sort of like attacking neoliberalism in particular, not just as like an economic uh, structure, but also like in the in the way that Wendy Brown talks about it is almost like an ethos or morality um, you know, you, you talk about this trope of like trickle down that extends from economics into politics, this idea that like, um, you know, it, knowledge will just kind of trickle down and cause change. You know, this is like the quintessential neoliberal lie in some sense. And you talk about like how the discussion of power itself gets erased in what you term corporate feminism. I wonder, like at this point, how you're thinking about that idea of power, because uh, you, you don't exactly articulate it. Um, I think maybe in the section on leadership, you are getting at it. But, you know, do you think it makes sense today, culturally and politically, to even talk about taking power? Like, what does it mean? Is that a model politically that women should and, and people, feminists should adopt at this political moment to like gain an equal share of power? You know, at the end of the book, you're saying like without attacking the roots we cannot win. That's a different model of power than just like trying to take power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting because t- like the idea of taking power uh, has, has, has evolved into the idea of, of just smashing the, the glass ceiling, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that's a popular understanding of, of, of moving yourself, a feminist into a position of power. Therefore that's how you advance feminism. And I, and I'm very critical of that, obviously, because you know, a, a power analysis. And I, I've actually I felt like I have to, I have to give Sandy a ton of credit for this because this is how she talks all the time. But I feel like a power analysis has been so uh, at the front of my mind from the pandemic, from the pandemic perspective. It's, it's, it's always something I'm considering. How do we understand who has power? How do we understand how to undermine that power? How do we build our own power and that kind of thing? But the idea that feminism can advance through us just taking positions of power without without disrupting what those positions are and what they represent, that's the, that's the fundamental clash between uh, bourgeois or white feminism and radical feminism or, or fe- a feminism that, um, that understands that it cannot be the case in Canada that feminism is a fight that doesn't also uh, involve co- colonialism or anti-colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was a really... When I was writing the book, you, like you'll notice the last chapter is when I talk about these like issues, as you said, these issues of power. And I was very, I was conscious of not wanting to wait till the end to write about that, but also that I needed to get through the, the nuts and bolts of organizing before I got to that too. Uh, and so it was, it was like not by accident that it was the last chapter. 
Um, but it's also a little bit unfortunate that it's the last chapter because I don't like, I don't want people to think that it's so late in the book because it's like less important, but that there's this narrative that's building throughout all the chapters that get us to like, what then do we need to actually confront, which is politics, which is the second last chapter. And then, and then, um, the corporate colonial, uh, racist, uh, structures that, that exist within Canadian society. And, and, you know, talking about feminism in this way is, is really important because it gets past the mainstream conception of what feminism is, right? When we, when we don't talk about power, then we can talk about how Christian Freeland is a feminist. If we talk about power, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter what Christian Freeland thinks about feminism or about being a woman or anything like that. Then it becomes about the fact that we have this person who's in this position who is doing uh, unfeminist things, and we need to confront this person regardless of how they self-identify. And that whole self-identification, you know, it's it's one one another of so many concepts that come from the left, that come from a very important place, a very good place where you're building uh, power and autonomy and self-determination and all the stuff for individual people who've been marginalized, and how that has been taken away from these communities. And then applied into a hegemonic situation where now all of a sudden the people with power also can self-identify. It, it just it doesn't make any sense when unless you actually inject that question of power. Um, and because neoliberalism has done such a good job at erasing the question of power, I wanted to have a very big emphasis on this for people reading the book who may have never thought about power in that way. So that the glass ceiling no longer is the ideal of how feminists can you know advance within society. But instead, that feminists advance within society when we attack colonialism, feminists advance within society when we, you know, uh, uh, get rid of the police, right? I talk a little bit about policing in the book. Um, Of course, it came out before the defund the police um, movement really uh, took off. But, you know, like the difference between the Globe and Mail doing a huge feature on, on policing in Canada and the solutions and the victory that that um, that that big report uh got was that the police got more money (laughs) yeah you know like that's that's the kind of thing that i was interrogating and uh that i was criticizing um because you know when you ask uh like if you if you talk to journalists if you talk to politicians like what's the what are what is one of the biggest biggest feminist thing that's happened within canada it's like oh it's the unfounded series from the globe and mail and it's like uh right okay you know again yeah sure if you don't think too hard about the what that what the series was missing in terms of the mm-hmm. diversity of the people that they were talking to and of course that was that goes back to a bit of a problem with data um but then also uh the solutions which ended up of course actually beefing up the security apparatus and beefing up uh funding to police under the auspices of oh but this money will be tr- teaching them to not be misogynists <laughs> it's like that's not gonna work <laughs> it does not work that way no yeah um you know there's a certain kind of um, you know, triumphalism when it comes to like capturing a moment, like uh, uh, codifying a moment, I think with either, you know, an important high profile acclaimed uh, uh, series of journalistic pieces or like a documentary. It's like that somehow provides uh, closure to a mainstream that is exhausted at w- needing to worry about particular issues. Like I had a student recently express a certain kind of anxious exhaustion at the prospect of struggle in relationship to this kind of notion that, you know, uh, uh, Me Too as a movement uh, represented sort of the kind of sustained deplatforming and holding accountable of like toxic men or patriarchy as such. Like she said, like, uh, this is this is exhausting. The notion that we can't at, at a certain point be done with struggle. But uh, this is sort of the message of your book that a, a certain kind of triumphalism is is necessarily flawed. These high profile moments pr- possess a strategic importance in terms of like generating um, oppositional optimism, but it's 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 not enough. Like visibility is not enough. Even this kind of this kind of language of feeling, it, it can you know feeling victorious is not the same as actually like creating lasting change. And so I think you know the, your message that there's a certain kind of deterministic narrative around me too. Like you move from me too, to the slut walk phenomenon, which was like a very, you know, a precursor to this sort of um, feminist organizing online and then back into me too. And you're sort of saying that there is a deterministic narrative 
that actually forecloses an agonistic struggle against gender oppression that some you know regard as just exhausting and want to be done with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, because it is exhausting, right? Like the idea right. that you're going to uh, defeat misogyny by constantly talking about the abuse that you've suffered, mm. like that's the that's the trick of me too, right? And and it's like it again, it took something that comes from left wing thinking, which is that uh, survivors of sexual assault should be able to name their abusers. They should be able to name their abuse and talk about their experiences and they should not face stigma and they should not be uh, ignored and they should be believed. Those are all principles, like really important principles that come from progressive feminist organizing. And they took that and made that into the campaign, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, that's not a campaign. That is you talking about your experiences. Like you have, you, you, you deserve to be able to talk about your experiences, but to tell someone that denouncing their, their abuse is the same thing as struggling against abuse is a really pernicious lie because of course it leads to burnout. It 100% leads to isolation because you can only talk about your abuse so much and your abuse might look like someone else's abuse, but they're not, there isn't really solidarity within these experiences because at the end of the day, they remain very personal and they're the things that you might return to when your eyes are closed or when you're falling asleep. Like that, that's not something that you're able to engage in collective struggle against, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, 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 the peak of, of, um, of action in this logic is to then punish the person who's caused you the harm. And that's flawed because we don't have systems of punishment that are fair. We don't have systems of punishment that work. Right. We don't have a court system that's fast. We don't have a court system that's fair. Yeah, they talk about this in feminism for ninety nine percent, right? The limits of carceral feminism, as they right. call, as they call it. Yeah. Right, and even if it wasn't carceral, even if you were just asking for retribution in some kind of way, you're not going to solve patriarchy by going after abusive men directly. You have to look at the systems and the structures that give those men the power to be abusive in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, then there will always be more abusive people. There will always be more abuse. Abuse is cyclical. It's intergenerational. It's it's often formed decades earlier, right? It's, it's often formed in childhood. It's often formed in the childhood of your parents. <laughs> like, yeah. There are so many things that if we focus solely on these individualistic responses to misogyny, we will never, ever get past the, the individual shouting something out. So, of course, there is a, an incredible exhaustion that comes from this. What is way more important is creating communion, is creating togetherness is coming together and struggling together and deciding to take this radical action together or deciding to do this kind of learning together or deciding to open up a kitchen or do uh, food exchanges or, or whatever, like actually doing something. And it's in those, those experiences and those spaces where you're doing something that you actually don't get burned out. You're actually nourished. You're actually, um, you're actually given what you need, that community that you need to break the isolation, to break the anxiety, and to break the individualism that something like Me Too has baked into its core. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that is very different from the the kind of more, I think, bold structural uh, change that you're advocating for, you know, in, in the book. Like you you talk about the how the response to, you know, what you term femi- femicide, and even naming it femicide is, is still, I think, a radical move um, that addressing that has to be collective. And you even say that, um, again, attacking the roots of the problem, we need to find ways to reach people who might succumb to violent racism and misogyny. And, you know, I was really moved by uh, the book's afterword, which talks about, um, you know, the the kind of grief that we're and, and shock that we're still experiencing in Nova Scotia following um, the spree shooting uh, that took place um uh, last year, I won't name the person who committed the act, but you 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 juxtapose the spree shooting with the um, the Picton uh, murders and talk about how you know male rage takes lives. You say flatly, you know, male violence destroys lives. That this person's obsession with the RCMP was not immaterial to his crime. That he was dressing up as a symbol of white male power 
like you're talking again about the symbolic and structural uh, roots of misogyny. You describe being yourself attacked by an army of online trolls, you know, spearheaded by Jason Kenney. I wonder if you could like expand on the feeling of actually being targeted yourself. You, you know, is it something that at some, at some point you, you are exhausted by, or even intimidated by, or do you find um, like many, you know, militant feminists like Elle Jones do a certain kind of, uh, I don't know how to name it, like courage or drive from having to confront the reality of this kind of bullshit, this misogynistic bullshit. For many years in Quebec City, we saw the rise of the far right. And um, a lot of young activists felt like they were targets, like that they were going to be targeted by the far right. Um, and there's all these ways that we're watching the far right and, share, and sharing information together and all this kind of thing. And then, of course, what happens, uh, the people who are attacked were, were Muslims in prayer inside their mosque, people who had never done activism, who did not go out and say, we're starting a fight with the far right. Uh, and the attacker is someone who wasn't organized with these, orga- with these groups either, uh, who was radicalized online and who took inspiration from like, the global white supremacy movement far more than local organizing. It was a good reminder to me uh, that, um, you know, as much as I have been attacked um, online, as much as, I mean, the first time I've ever had my life threatened directly, I was 21 or 20 years old. And so I kind of came to this very early and learned how to not like let it bother me in a very early age. Um, But at the end of the day, those of us with profile um, are not the most vulnerable because the acts of terror that uh, are the most dangerous are these acts that are targeted, but not targeted in the way that the popular culture would tell you they're targeted. They're targeted in the way like the the shooter in Nova Scotia targeted his victims, his neighbors, his partner, um, randomly on the road, people in his community. And his way to target people was through random violence in some ways, right? Uh, and Picton, he, he targeted people based on vulnerability and based on his ability to get away with it. And, and none of those victims were activists. None of those victims were the people who are in the newspapers saying stop violence against women or, or, or you know, give more rights to sex workers necessarily. Um, and so those of us who hold these positions, we need to be very sober about the, the actual threats against us. I think Elle is right. I mean, I, I've just got so much respect for Elle and I know what she deals with mm-hmm. uh, on the regular. Um, and I have you know some idea of what that's like, although obviously our experiences are quite different as well. But we're not the ones who are at most risk. The ones who are at most risk are the ones who cannot do the stuff that we do, who cannot speak out the way that the stuff that the way that I speak out. And, um, and, you know, when, you, when I, you know, because I know people are really worried about me. <laughs> like, I think that mm-hmm. people are more worried about me than I am worried about myself. Um, and, and the reason for that is because, like, again, you look at the statistics, like, statistically speaking, I'm not the target, the target is going to be more random, it's going to be someone who has never necessarily taken out these positions, who's not putting themselves forward in this way. Right? Think of the victims of the van attack in Toronto, not one of those people probably thought that their life would ever be ended by a misogynist attack in the way that it was ended. And so like, yeah, I think that, you know, any, there's a lot of people that are always very worried that these, these attacks will translate into something in real life. But for me personally, um, I mean, I'm just kind of like, bring it. Like I have way more to lose when it comes to the uh, state security apparatus and the courts (laughs) than Mm -hmm. I have to lose from, from random acts of violence, because that's not how they happen. Um, because yeah, there isn't this, you know, exposure to like Ruth, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about this kind of like unnatural, uh, uh, as it were, exposure to premature, yeah, death that comes from, you know, occupying a position at the intersection of multiple forms of oppression. Like I totally get what you're saying, right? Like, I, and I think that is sobering to have to, you know, confront that reality, right? Um, and and shows that you are as you do throughout your book, like really trying to uh, model, I would say, a certain kind of situated feminism. This is, And so this kind of, in a sense, brings us to the question of leadership. Leadership is a, a term that you see clearly a certain amount of value in, but it's like a, it's a contested thing for you. Like, um, you know, leadership, just like debate can be a thing that gets corrupted when it becomes a question of cult-like cultivation of like influence and power um, and, you know, even as you've pointed out, like 
the uh, you know production of feminist writing is is, e- is somewhat easily commodified, especially in the age of the algorithm. Like you say in your book, opinion pieces disappear into search engine algorithms to the detriment of true knowledge being created, shared, and expanded. And you seem to use the key example of Roxane Gay's work. I mean, Roxane Gay now is is like she has a master class in social criticism, right? That you can like subscribe to master classes and learn how to do social criticism. And I think that's great in a sense, you know, like um, she's earned that platform. Um, but in a, in a weird way, that commodification of knowledge is also an inoculation of the radical, like importance of the the knowledge itself. Like, you know, you, you quote Roxane Gay on, on like trigger warnings, for example, and you say, or she says, few are willing to consider the complexity and kind of case specific nature of trigger warnings. Um, and then you kind of lament the fact that that piece, which kind of like hit the nail on the head when it came to, it came to the question of uh, this debated idea of trigger warnings was kind of ignored. It just got lost in the shuffle. I wonder like to what extent, you know, this, you know, dovetails with the claim in the book around the fact that left-wing movements are waning, that there is this kind of either lack of leadership or uh, a collapsing of leadership into an Instagram feed or, you know, AOC's live stream or the sheer number of followers that one gets. Is it is it about the, the decline of uh, left-wing leadership or is it about the kind of... Um, the sort of like uh, uh, corruption of it by these algorithms. Yeah, I think it's a symptom of the strength of the movements. Hmm. And because our movements are so uh, weak right now, leadership becomes a bit of a shortcut, right? So it's easier for someone to just kind of be a feminist leader and comment if there's a feminist thing happening in the press than for them to have any movement behind them. And so, you know, in the chapter on leadership, I, I, I try to explain what I mean by leadership because I don't actually mean mm. creating a leader for mm-hmm. our movement, but more that these, these locations, what we lose when our, when our movements are weak is we, we lose a, a location where people can learn to be leaders, to learn leadership. So how do you learn how to speak to a large crowd? How do you learn to bring people together? How do you learn accountability? How do you learn uh, reflecting the opinions of people Uh, that just made a decision that then you can bring forward. And I contrast this to the far right, um, specifically like the anti-choice movement, where uh, there's this incredible network of leadership development, where people are caught at a very young age, usually in religious organizations, and they're given the, the, the platforms necessary to develop leadership skills. So they're actually put on speaking tours across church basements or small restaurants in Canada. And these young people develop leadership skills such that by the time they're in their 20s, they're actually able to run for, for, for office. And the, and the Conservative Party benefits massively from this because so many of their members of provincial parliament or members of parliament come from these like uh, religious kind of backgrounds where they had the experience of learning leadership before. And then they go out into the world and they do their damage um, thanks to the training that they got um, to be to, to be a certain kind of leader uh, from these groups. And so there's nothing like this on the left. And instead, we are left with writers like Roxane Gay, who, I mean, her feminism is super, like, we can, we should criticize it. She's got a lot of holes in her analysis and feminism. She's not an activist. She doesn't come from an organization that does activist work. She's a writer. And, you know, the, the, and there's so many other people like her, people who founded early feminist blogs are now vaulted into like positions of feminist leadership with no movement behind them. And the problem with that is that means there's no accountability. There's no location to have positions change and then have someone be able to change their mind. The the position that they take is the position that they have. And maybe they change their mind, but when the internet age, uh, you know, it's very hard to change your mind because then all of a sudden becomes Mm -hmm. a de facto, I was wrong rather than creating a location where people can come together, debate, and then there's a leadership structure to then express that opinion. And so in absence of this, there really are few situations where young feminists or new feminists, right? It's not an age thing necessarily, uh, but they, they, they learn uh, through, uh, through, these, uh, through, a, through a structure of some kind, how to work with other people, how to negotiate, how to compromise, how to debate, how to hold your ground, how to talk to people, how to perfect the three minute pitch, how to be charming, how to have charisma, and then go into other worlds to become a mayor, to become a 
a fucking whatever, right? A, a union shop steward to become a, a, a local member of provincial parliament. And that absence of this leadership machine on the left uh, means that we have so many weaknesses and then we default to then, okay, you know what? We'll just actually find the silver bullet leader. And through that individual, all of our problems will be erased because that individual can become the embodiment of our movement. And, you know, you can look at perfect example of that is the, is the NDP, right? A lot of people saw Jagmeet Singh as being that person that could make the NDP into whatever government, uh, a new party, a progressive party, a diverse party or whatever. But the reality is, is that no leader is going to erase the problems underneath the, the, the lack of organization, the lack of structure, the lack of accountability, uh, the, 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 the atrophy, the, the terrible positions or the positions that haven't been updated, the control. Uh, a lot of times now I'm talking about, you know, the NDP and the labor movement. Mm. Uh, and I, I moved immediately to there because on, in, in the feminist movement, there is nobody. I mean, there are very few people that you would cl- classify as a feminist leader because there's very few structures of feminism that actually have leadership attached to them. Like how would it happen? Yeah. And and in the pandemic, my God, like who's who are media going to mostly to talk about the she session? They're mostly going to like economists that are women. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, you know that's that, that's a part of this. But that's not. There will be no radical perspective there, no, though. No, no. Yeah. Wow, uh, you've given me so much of your time. I don't want to take necessarily too much more. Um, I think everybody should read your book. It's really terrific. And I will say too that in the book, you're really insisting. I think. Uh, in a way on, you know, feminism's continued relevance for broader intersectional struggles against this neoliberal death machine. Mm-hmm. Like it's al- it's almost as though you're attempting to resuscitate feminism against a certain kind of commodification. Like you're saying, it needs to be rehabilitated um, in its almost threatening usage and it's, yeah. its kind of consequential oppositional uh, nature. And, and definitely everybody should subscribe to your podcast. It's... Uh, it is a comfort, but also it's it, it is a space. It's a it's a space to engage, I think, with knowledge and sharing uh, in the neoliberal collapse of the public sphere, basically. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I've really uh, enjoyed this. <laughs>